bad boy, Gabriel. It's time. We cut out the cancer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fear Response Podcast. We are so happy to have you. I'm Jenna. I'm a registered nurse, and I have a specialty in psychiatry. Yes, welcome back, everyone. My name is John, and I'm a trained therapist, and I now oversee a team of counselors. We're going to be discussing a very fun movie today. Mm -hmm. Jenna and I saw this one in the theaters when it came out, and we've seen it several times since then, I would say. And each time, it's always a lot of fun. Decidedly more fun than the last one. More fun than any other one that we've talked about. Do you think that's safe to say? I think The Omen is really fun. You know what? The Omen is fun. Yeah, but I agree. It's in a different... This one's in a different category. It's got camp. It's got lots of action. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. And we really have been dealing with some serious movies so far. Yeah. This is the goofiest one by A Country Mile. Indeed, and hopefully the, not the goofiest one we ever cover, or the only goofy one, but it's in a category of its own as opposed to the ones we've already done, and this is one of the ones that I think it would be fair to say wasn't snubbed at the Oscars, although it didn't win or get nominated for any. Um, sadly. <laughs> so yeah, really excited to talk about this movie. It comes to us from James Wan, who's got a big list of horror properties, the Conjuring Universe, Insidious. What else? Uh, Saw. Saw, all the Saw franchise, of course. Yeah, so he's uh, he's definitely a big deal. Also Megan, which we really liked. Yeah, and in a similar vein to this one, goofy and fun. 100%. The uh, lead actress in this movie is also in Peaky Blinders, and uh, and she's very good. And other than her, I don't think I recognized anyone in it. I can't say that I did either. I don't mind it. In this day and age, sometimes there might be pressure to have like a quote unquote bankable actor who can carry kind of a, a film. But this one, no, I, I can't say I had any any star recognition in terms of who's in it. But I don't think the movie suffers for that at all. No, I don't. I really don't mind that when there's no one that I recognize because sometimes it sometimes it can be to the movie's benefit because it kind of brings you into it a bit more fair enough fair enough as opposed to being like okay there's Brad Pitt doing some stuff there's Tom Cruise doing some stuff yeah it's like oh World War Z the zombies are coming what's Brad Pitt gonna do about it yeah so yeah I, I agree I think sometimes if you have too big a star or something it can sometimes take me out of it at least mm -hmm. you know so malignant ready to jump into it <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i would love to okay uh you know right from jump street this movie had me it's just it's just a funny opening scene because we open on like a very remote medical research facility that's at the top of a sheer cliff at night in the middle of a storm yep in a creepy old castle yeah pretty much it, it's in it's in dracula's castle basically which yeah. is great for the horror <laughs> genre anyway People run to meet this female head doctor, basically to get her to come out of her office and, and to come immediately to a patient room. And they say yep. that Gabriel is getting stronger and more malicious. Right. And there's lights are flickering and everyone's in a panic and you're running down the hallway and security guard gets really horribly injured with a very badly broken arm. Yeah, terrible arm break. 
Uh, compound fracture, which is when the bone comes outside of the skin. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and all this culminates, like, there are bodies flying through the air, kind of a telekinesis thing going on. Right. Do you think that that's explicit, that it's telekinesis? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I'm sure it's not telekinesis, actually, because he doesn't do it ever again. No, he's just super strong. He's just a super strong thing, right? Yes, he's got some kind of definitely superhuman strength, but it is he does have to touch the things but he doesn't but he can mess with electronics yeah hence the light flickering right the lights flickering and he starts talking through the radio at that point why is there a radio in the room yeah after this head doctor takes from the security guard like an enormous rifle with a trank dart in it and shoots gabriel and you know what fun fact standard issue on all hospital units i was going to ask you trank trank darts so like peds and nicu as well NICU, uh, it's actually, it's uh, inversely proportionate to the size of the baby. So they have the biggest trank darts oh. <laughs> for the teeniest, tiniest baby. Because you got to shoot them harder. So like, <laughs> so like then, um, you know, in the geriatric ward, it's just like a little pea shooter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. So she, yeah, she puts Gabriel down with this big ass gun that despite what Jenna's saying, I do not think is standard issue for a hospital no, at all. No, I, I was being facetious. <laughs> it is, it's definitely not like, I mean, the one thing that is true, I think across like any um, show or movie that is mm-hmm. like medically based is they like to play with what people's roles are and who would be doing what. Um, yeah. So it's like, I don't think that if there was something like that going on, it wouldn't ever fall to the doctor to take care of it. I can tell you that much. No kidding. And it, it's like in Grey's Anatomy, how they always have the surgeons are like sitting beside the patient's bed and fluffing their pillows and stuff. Learning tell about you right their life. Now, yeah, that does not happen. <laughs> yeah. That's the nurse every time. You know what kind of scene I'm looking forward to? As much as I was looking forward to the evil social worker which we've already <laughs> kind of run across in some of the movies we've spoken about, is being chased and attacked in an empty hospital. And there just happens yeah. to be no one around because it's the nighttime. And yeah. I remember you saying several times when we were watching several movies, like that would absolutely never be the case. <laughs> no. or Nor would someone be, be able to like fake being something and be like, oh, I'm just going to go take this patient somewhere. I'd be like, what the hell? Because <laughs> like, that patient belongs to someone. I'd be like, this is my, my patient. What are you talking about? Yeah, I need to know where they're going. <laughs> so yeah, she does put Gabriel down with the basically enormous sniper rifle. And we get some kind of small reveals of Gabriel. Like the big, the big shape of the body. And then they're dragging Gabriel around. And we see some kid socks and stuff. Mm-hmm. We see him kind of through a curtain, but it's not very clear. So we see all these limbs and stuff moving around. Mm-hmm. And the doctor says very poignantly, it's time to cut out the cancer. And she's saying it as a euphemism, though. So probably not something that you should do when you're a doctor. <laughs> probably rude. Yeah, you probably shouldn't be referring to things that aren't cancer as cancer as a doctor. Exactly. It's like, ah, oh, it was a figure of speech. <laughs> yeah. 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 No kidding. They should know better. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, for the credits, for the opening credits, we're like bombarded with some very gnarly dissection pictures. Yep. Lots of pretty like. intense. Lots of like pretty gory kind of pseudo medical images. Maybe some like surgical stuff. Maybe some like 
dead tissue. So like pretty, pretty gnarly, especially for the yeah. very beginning of a movie. I always feel like to not like kind of build up to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And yet still like, I was thinking about another title sequence that has a lot of creepy stuff in it. It's still not as disturbing as like the title sequence from Seven. I was just going to say, and I can't even remember what it was, but I had the feeling that Seven had a really intense one. It's yucky and makes your skin crawl. Whereas this one is just kind of like gross. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite as uh, off-putting maybe, but disgusting still. No, I feel like it doesn't have the same vibe. Not as as sinister seeming maybe? Not as sinister. No, it's like, it's lighthearted gore. Okay, I get, yeah, you're right about that. Um, And just before the credits did start as well, Gabriel does take control of an old-timey radio to tell everyone in the room that he's going to kill them. Yes. And she's the doctor, which again, not a very professional statement to make probably, says, you've been a very bad boy, Gabriel. (laughs) (laughs) Right off the hop, you're like, oh, this movie's great. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a good time. Right, exactly. It doesn't really take itself too seriously, which is great. I mean, if anyone's noticed, that's kind of our vibe too. Do you think that um, a non-horror watcher could go see it? Do you think it's that lighthearted and goofy? I would say that if it weren't for the gore. So I would worry that one thing that a, a person who who doesn't like horror or says they don't like horror would really want to avoid would be gore. And there definitely is some pretty intense gore in this movie. Right over the top and so they also reference in the beginning they reference uh ect electric convulsion therapy right they say that the ect had no effect on him so i wondered if you wanted right. to kind of expand on ect as a concept a little bit because maybe not everyone's familiar i will and i feel like a lot of people might uh, might know it better by a more kind of colloquial like shock therapy or shock treatment which right. is not yeah not used clinically but ECT stands for electroconvulsive therapy and it's a kind of therapy that it does involve electrical stimulation of the brain while the patient is under anesthesia so it's not the kind of scary seemingly inhumane thing that a lot of people imagine it to be and it can actually be really effective treatment especially for mood disorders like major depression, but I have seen it used also with some psychotic disorders with mood components. But yeah, so people kind of imagine it from one flew over the cuckoo's nest, I think is, is looms pretty large in the uh, public consciousness. But right. that obviously was a long, long time ago, and also dramatized. So it is the same therapy represented there, but it doesn't look like that at all. And it's something that I have definitely seen be very, very effective. So when people come to me with fear around it, if it's been suggested to them by their doctors, when when I'm talking to patients about it, that's something I like to highlight is that I've seen it be a real game changer for some people. Mm -hmm. And it is um, it does have a certain side effect profile that like you always have to do a cost benefit analysis when when you're doing any kind of medication or uh, other kind of treatment. So there are some significant side effects like there's muscle soreness tiredness, fatigue, dizziness, uh, and one of the big ones is memory loss. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be considered. And that's why it's usually you go through a bunch of other kinds of treatments before you would land on this one. But like I say, it can be very effective. And it's even done as outpatient treatment. So there's even people who leave their house first thing in the morning, go get their treatment and go straight back home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So it can be very effective and very livable and easy to kind of work into your life and continue to live your life the way you want to. So yeah, I don't want people to think of it as kind of the boogeyman that they imagine from old movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the way that I'm sure that they are using it here, like, and to use it on a kid, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, I think for that reason alone, it's not, it's not been a big part of my work. But I think probably a lot of people might be surprised to learn that ECT is in use and quite effective. They might, they might imagine it in a very archaic, almost torturous kind of way, which is really unfortunate because it obviously has a lot of stigma to it. Not at all. And like, like I say, the patient's under anesthesia. So their, yeah. their brain is, is receiving electrical impulses, but they're not in distress. Exactly. And one of the things that appeals to me about it is sometimes people who are really struggling with a mental illness, they might have a lot of difficulty making changes to aspects of their life that might help them to pull out of something like a depression or to really improve their mental health. And so if you can access a treatment that you don't necessarily have to know how it works for it to work for you. Oh, 100%. And, you know, you can go and and get some treatment and see its benefits. I think that that could really appeal in a lot of cases where maybe the the depression or what have you is difficult to treat. So, um, so yeah, we wanted to unpack that a bit because we felt like it was just a throwaway reference to ECT. But we wanted to kind of expand on that because it is actually a really relevant thing to be talking about even in in 2023, Mm -hmm. which maybe not everybody knew. But that is the first 10 seconds of this movie. (laughs) <laughs> uh, unpacked for you in full and so we do go through the title credits with all the dissection which again just kind of surprised me I guess it uh, it almost felt you know what it felt like it had some saw DNA in it to me which yeah, it clearly well, that does would make sense. right it's fathered by the same guy <laughs> yes so same DNA hello so then we show up to a very beautiful old spooky absolutely enormous house palatial james wan haunted house vibes and we've talked about this before when we talked about the conjuring that james wan has an affinity in his movies for these big giant rooms to to move the camera around in fun and interesting ways and do that kind of thing and so sometimes it doesn't always fit narratively because it seems like maybe maddie might be the only one working because she comes home from her shift and her partner is just sitting around loafing around in their room (laughs) and yet they've got this absolutely enormous house in seattle can't imagine the square footage of that house square footage is really the key because like in their enormous room there's a bed and that's it there's so much empty space yeah but maddie comes home from her shift and her partner is questioning why she's already home and she's dressed in some care garb she's got some scrubs on so she's some kind of caring position you'd think and uh, she's also maybe around five or six months pregnant to look at her. And uh, yeah, she was basically saying she kind of can't make it through her shift. So she had to come home. And he seems a, a bit miffed by that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it goes kind of beyond that. They get into somewhat of a tiff. And immediately we jump into an absolute horrible example of really dramatic domestic abuse. It's interesting because the things that happen in this movie, and like we said, the movie does have a very funny tone to it, but the things that happen in this movie are very violent and awful, but they feel a little less grounded than watching this episode of of domestic violence play out right in front of you and so quickly too. 
yes, I do view it so differently. When later in the movie, he is just ripping people's bodies apart and destroying people. But my brain doesn't think like, oh my gosh, that person has parents. That's so sad. Because it just feels like cannon fodder, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. But when it's something like domestic abuse, that's it hits closer to home and it's like more relatable. So it's more like kind of stomach turning to see it. Yeah, and it just has more of an ick factor because domestic violence is such a serious issue, right? And and it is a very real world issue as well. Well, exactly. Yeah. And so in this instance, he like pushes her so hard against a wall that her skull cracks. And he like breaks the plaster. Yeah, that's what starts the action of this movie is that yes. her her literal skull is fractured. Busts her head like a grape. Yeah, he he busts her head open. Yeah. Which, speaking as a medical professional, uh, it's not healthy. It's not good for you. I'm glad. I'm glad you were able to expand on that because I, I had my concerns that it wasn't. That's why I'm here. Compound fractures, busted heads. None of these things are good for your health on the whole. No. And then he immediately kind of backtracks. But that's, yeah. I think, pretty common within within domestic abuse situations. Right. Says, oh, I'll go run and get you some ice and this and that. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Yeah, it's the least you could do. Um, yeah, and, and so then, he's saying, and she locks yeah. the door on him, right? And he's kind of on the other side of it saying, oh, I can't control myself, blah, blah, blah. But then we cut to him sleeping on the couch that night. It's almost played as if he's like in the doghouse, which is, yeah. you know, kind of way underselling it, right? Exactly. But she clearly didn't call the police and, and all these things, which is which, again, could be very common. But he's basically just kind of spending time away from her, but still in the house and everything. So pretty unsafe situation for her. Yes. He is uh, sleeping on the couch and she's sleeping by herself upstairs, still actively bleeding from her head wound. Like, it's just completely awful. Do you know that the, the highest risk time for someone in a domestic abuse relationship is when they leave that person? Right. So soon after leaving them, right? Yeah. And I remember you also mentioning that one of the biggest dangers to pregnant women as well is intimate partner violence in terms of their, yep. in terms of unexpected death and things like this, right? Yep. How horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But in the fun tone of this movie, though, yeah. <laughs> not to worry because he is about to get his come up in, in a big way. Yeah. Yep. So we go full ghosty poltergeist kind of horror movie here oh, yeah. because he's alone on the, uh, the main floor and... The TV is staticking and he he's looking around him and the fridge is open and he thinks that there might be kind of a presence around. Yep. And boy is there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden crash zoom on his head getting slammed into the wall and stabbed on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, yep. it's like this movie just goes 100 miles an hour right away. It does. And guys, that's fatal for him. Yes, but... Also, it doesn't stop there because when the police are there and the tech is going through the scene, his body's all mangled. His neck is like broken backwards and turned around. And she says she wouldn't have seen anything like that except maybe in a vehicular accident. So definitely some overkill on this guy. Mm -hmm. And couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Most definitely. But yeah, maybe one time in a hundred You'd go to the fridge and trip, and then your neck is broken backwards, but probably not often. Maybe maybe one time in a thousand. <laughs> that is an Exorcist reference for anyone who hasn't been through our whole catalog. We, we recommend that episode, our first one. It's number one. 
And we get introduced to some kind of interesting working dynamics between the law enforcement professionals. Yep. The tech has a bit of a crush on Detective Shaw. Right. Detective Shaw seems to have a more sympathetic way about him. But his partner, she seems to be immediately suspicious of Maddie, right? Which it's it's interesting because basically I think everyone feels like, okay, yes, but Maddie couldn't have done this. Like, look at the well, physical yeah, remains it, of this guy. Exactly. So, like, when they're looking at uh, Derek's body mm-hmm. um, in, like, the morgue, that's where she kind of says, like, well, uh, Maddie has motive. Right. And it's like, well, sure. But she still can't accomplish what was done to this guy. No. I mean, A, she's probably less physically strong than him and smaller. And she was injured. And she was heavily pregnant and she was injured. Yeah. And so speaking of her injuries, so pretty soon after we find ourselves in the hospital and Mm -hmm. her sister is with her. And unfortunately, this fell to the sister to do, to break the news to Maddie that she lost her baby, that her her baby died. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and also, this has been the case many times, is what we're told, right? Yeah, makes it sound like she's miscarried several times. But I was saying um, to you previously that the gestation that she was at, just to look at, to look at her because we don't know exactly, but that is late Yes. To have a pregnancy loss. Yeah, and I think that, you know, her sister's trying to be supportive. And it it's a big blow to Maddie, too. We'll see in, in the scenes following this one that she maybe is going through an episode of a very down mood following the news and yep. this kind of thing, right? Not to mention her boyfriend was just viciously killed, but I think that <laughs> the, the pregnancy loss is a huge part of it, right? Yeah, things are not going well for poor Maddie. Hopefully she comes to see the the murder of her boyfriend as a blessing. (laughs) As a blessing? That seems generous, but... (laughs) He seems like a complete ass. Yep. We also see it's kind of some fun stuff in the hospital that her sister dresses as a princess for work. So that's pretty funny. And Detective Shaw was there to try to interview Maddie at that time, right? Yes. And there's a little bit of flirtation. Very, very inappropriate between Sydney and officer shaw yeah well apparently everybody loves detective shaw for some reason eh? he's got a lot of female interest <laughs> uh you know what i have a hunch it could be maybe because he's handsome could be uh yeah yeah you're probably right about that maybe that's why <laughs> something about something about the fact that he's just very handsome handsome guy cool job makes sense but basically not much gets accomplished in the hospital no, she's home very quickly in, in terms of the scenes. She's back to her absolutely huge house. Yep. Walking quickly between rooms and stuff. And we get a cool overhead shot that follows her through the hallways and follows her into different rooms and stuff, which was really cool. And she's kind of isolating herself in here, mm-hmm. which is why her sister has to climb the tree outside of her window and get in through her bedroom window in order to interact with her, which is very good of her. The sister's great. She's a great support person. She is great. I think they have a nice relationship. And Me too. you know what's interesting about support people is that it can really make the difference in someone's hospital stay because it's a completely different scenario to send someone home from a serious mental health admission mm-hmm. 
if they have a like strong support system versus if they don't. Yeah, of course. Exactly. It could make the difference between someone staying a month and someone staying a couple of days. Like could literally make that big of a difference. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that is one of the most important and biggest aspects of a mental health safety plan is also supervision. Yeah. So it's like if someone is going home alone and they're not necessarily going to have anyone with them and they mm-hmm. were suicidal or they they were dealing with other kind of unsafe situations, then mm-hmm. you're going to feel like, okay, how could I possibly even think about guaranteeing this person's safety? Or if you're talking about um, the onset of an illness, like a psychotic illness or mm-hmm. an episode of mania or something like that, someone being regularly around that person or in the same house as that person, mm-hmm. that's being able to identify changes, right? Right. Um, that that person might not be able to identify themselves. So it yeah, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, exactly. So good for Sydney. Yeah, she's doing exactly what she should, and she's working really hard to do it, considering she was knocking and ringing the doorbell and Maddie wasn't coming, and she had to yeah. scale the wall to get inside her bedroom window. So she's kind of daydreaming, I think, too, because as Sydney comes in, uh, Maddie is kind of staring at the wall and staring at her shadow, mm. which I thought, looking back on it, is some foreshadowing, and it's almost like a... Uh, union idea in terms of like facing your shadow self kind of which is what I was taking from it J-U-N-G yeah so that's union as in J-U-N-G not union yeah Carl Jung who was a student of Freud and then had his own ideas (laughs) yeah well good for him yeah imagine that (laughs) and so when Sydney does get up into the room and they get kind of talking and they're talking about the loss of Maddie's baby. Mm -hmm. Maddie kind of talks wistfully about part of the reason that it's so hard for her is that she was kind of longing to have a blood connection with someone. And this comes as a surprise to Sydney because she didn't actually realize until this moment when Maddie tells her that Maddie was adopted because Sydney's the younger sister. So Maddie had already always been around. So I guess that she had not known until that point that she'd been adopted. Yeah, exactly. And she also reveals that she doesn't really remember much about before. Yeah. 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 We cut to a woman giving underground tours in a super crazy kind of tunnel system beneath the city, right? Which is just wild. You know, I bet you it'd be really wet down there because um, Seattle's super rainy and wet. (laughs) You wouldn't want to work there for any extended period of time. You'd definitely have some blastosis of some kind. Think that you'd get the black lung? Yeah, something like that. Exactly. There's this big, big tunnel system. And she says that rumors say it goes all the way underneath all over the city for miles. And it's just like such a funny scene. I don't know. I was thinking I didn't know at first why they chose to give her this unique job, this character where, Mm. oh, well, my job is giving tours beneath the city in some crazy tunnel system. But I think Mm -hmm. what they're doing is establishing that idea of the tunnel system because it does become relevant later. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I didn't think it was that weird. People have jobs. Uh, It's (laughs) true. If if, like there totally would be a tour of that. And of course, you need a tour guide. So there you go. Yeah. And she starts getting a little bit of what happened to Brandon of the like lights flickering and classic spooky, scary movie stuff. Ghosty interference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, like, I think she she gets one light on after some go out, and then it just kind of goes out, and then that's where that scene ends, right? So it's kind of a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. 
And where we find her next is all tied up in a really weird attic with a gigantic fan. Yes. <laughs> and there's this creepy figure rattling around doing stuff who clearly kidnapped her. Lots of rummaging. Yeah. Yeah. Rummaging hard. And then uh, he, he picks up this woman's phone, basically tells her he's been waiting a long time to do this, picks up her phone and calls Dr. Weaver, mm-hmm. who is the head doctor from before from that creepy research facility. But why would she have Dr. Weaver's number still? Yeah, like, good question. She's probably updated phones like 10 times since then. Yeah, if she even had a cell phone. Maybe they're basically staying in contact to be like, has anything gone wild? You know what I mean? Like, do you think we actually handled that situation and and nothing bad has happened? Maybe. But or yeah, maybe it's just a little bit of a plot hole. Bit of a, yeah, like probably that wouldn't actually happen. But he uses her cell phone to call Dr. Weaver. And when she picks up, he uses, a, it's a radio again, right? Uh, yeah. To say it's time to cut out the cancer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty shortly after that, we wind up back in Maddie's house, yep. and she's walking around her house doing laundry, doing some chores, and we see the first of her visions. Yes. And it, it's a pretty good, classic, scary jump scare. For sure, yes. When you're opening a door, right. But it's like through the glass part of her washing machine. Yeah. Yeah, so all of a sudden, there's a lady saying, get out of my house! Yeah. And that, yeah, it actually scared me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a great scene good little jump scare there because this lady appears out of nowhere and it's really confusing at first and then kind of the scene that maddie's in melts away so the room that she's in kind of melts mm-hmm. away from her and mm-hmm. all of a sudden she finds herself viewing from the outside what's happening to dr weaver and dr weaver's home and we said that as we were watching the movie that we felt like that effect was pretty good and i yeah, yeah. i still think so yeah, and I, I sometimes have a hard time with, like, completely CGI stuff. Yeah. But that one looked really good. And I think it's probably the only way to shoot a scene like that, where, like, the room you're yeah. in has to melt into a different one. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, we need to call on CGI on this one. Yeah. We see Gabriel pick up a giant golden medical award that was on Dr. Weaver's, like, mantle, right? Mm-hmm. And just very viciously bludgeons her to death with it. Yes, and then he takes the sharp golden part of it yep. with him. And he also, um, Dr. Weaver had a picture of a little girl as well, right? Uh, yes. And Gabriel all of a sudden is back to the room where he has the, the woman he kidnapped tied up. And he's, again, very frantically, he's like shaving down and breaking apart that medical award he took from Dr. Weaver's home, the big golden one. And mm-hmm. he's sharpening its edges and making it basically yep. like a medium-sized sword with yeah. just like a ball as a hilt that he holds on to, right? And that's kind of part of the fun goofiness of this is exactly. like the murder weapon is like a literal jerry-rigged sword. Well, and it's, it's also an award for saving lives. Yeah. <laughs> in this room that they're in, it's very confusing where they could be because it's like, rafters and there's light shining through the slats it's clearly pretty shabby and the gigantic fan makes me think like industrial exactly it also has this industrial fan the diameter of it must be like 10 feet across it's huge so you're like where the fuck is this place yeah and i think that that that's probably by design for sure 
very incongruent, right? Yeah. So one thing that happens after, too, is that Maddie ends up watching the news the next day after having basically mm-hmm. to her mm-hmm. a horrible vision of a brutal murder that yep. she probably th- she probably thought was some kind of hallucination or bad yep. dream or anything like that. But then the next day she sees that the person, Dr. Weaver, really did die because it's on the news. So she begins yep. to have like a, a really scary realization. Yeah. And it's like so disorienting and confusing and yes. shocking to her that she winds up like puking and her yeah and this whole time this whole time sydney's with her like i i feel like i really like the way that they portrayed that because yeah i think that sometimes in in movies like relationships aren't played out very well in that someone might struggle through something completely by themselves with only like phone calls from their family members and that kind yeah. of thing but I feel like in a lot of families, that's not the way it would play out. Like you would have someone with you all the time or like with you a lot. I feel like they represent a pretty healthy family dynamic here in that Maddie's been through a horrible, multiple horrible traumas, uh, one right on top of the other. And Sydney is basically with her all the time to, to help her through that. And yeah. I feel like a lot of families um, would function that way. That's a good point. And certainly I think it would be ideal. Right. Even if it's overkill for you to be there, like it's probably still better to be there if you can than not if a person, you know, who you're close to might need you in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. So she chooses to after that go down to the precinct basically to report this crime. Her vision. Yeah. Her vision. And the, the precinct, even more so than her home is colossal it's enormous it has oh. like 50 foot cathedral yeah, ceilings. like what kind of what kind of building was that <laughs> it looks like an old church or something like it's huge in there's not even cubicles can you imagine trying to take a phone call in there it would be yeah. awful there's like wall-to-wall desks presumably with people talking about very sensitive information people talking about crimes that have happened and there's no cubicles it's all for show all for <laughs> show yeah we get a scene later where she gets another vision and it's another one of the doctors, one of the male doctors, and he has he seems to have like a condo or an apartment, which mm-hmm. is across from a hotel, so his room's all yeah. lit up in red. But do you know what that's like? That's like fucking uh, Seinfeld with the fried <laughs> yeah. chicken sign. It's exactly like that. So like he's got a very fancy apartment, but that would be a that would be really annoying. It's bathed in neon red all day and night. Yeah, come on. Yeah, that'd be no good. And he's kind of walking around the apartment talking about Doctor Weaver. Yes, because he knows that she got killed, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and isn't he packing his stuff? Yeah, I believe he is. And it's pouring rain outside and notices that his window is open, right? And goes and looks around and closes it. And then he's following drips into his closet because there's some mm-hmm. like pretty huge drips mm-hmm. of water on his floor right into his closet, which mm-hmm. is completely black. And he just kind of walks up to it and starts mm-hmm. going in. And I thought I'd be out of there. Yeah, yeah. By then, I'd be like, hell no, I'm not going in there. Do you think that it might actually take a fair amount to make you, like, fully leave your house? I think if it were just me, probably not. It would be another thing if, like, you have a whole family there that you'd have to be like, hey, guys, we got to go because of this. Like, maybe I'd be more likely to look into it then. But if it were just Mm. me and I was alone in my apartment, I'd be like, "Ah, I'm going. (laughs) Yeah. I think. I think. I don't think droplets of water would be enough to make me do that. After the window was open when you didn't expect it, and then they go in a trail into Mm. your closet? Mm. Maybe then. Maybe you'd assume it blew in, I guess, eh? 
I yeah, I have a feeling I would rationalize it quite a bit before I would be like, there's a person in there. Well, I think based on what we know of your history, you'd probably go grab a knife. Yeah. And start that, stabbing That's me every time. <laughs> that's me all over. So he, he does go into the closet. He turns the light on, checks it out. There's nothing there. And then he's right. going to bed, right? And we see an under the bed <laughs> shot of his ankles, right? And it's yeah. so funny because we're like, oh, no. Because we're right, all just... anticipating an Achilles tendon slash. Oh god! Right? Then they but just that doesn't even happen. The bed. <laughs> yeah, he just swings himself into bed. <laughs> so it's like they got all the effect almost of like a scene that's we've seen before, where someone gets well, the back of their ankle slashed, but we where, didn't even have to show have it. Have you seen that before? I don't remember. Do you? Pet cemetery. Oh god. Yeah. So bad. But it sticks with you, clearly. Well, it's just, oh, such a disgusting, a disgusting thing to imagine. So, yeah, we anticipate the Achilles tendon slash, but it and never there, happens. There's nothing. But then he climbs into bed and he's got a got another person in there. Well, okay, yeah. So <laughs> Maddie is laying in bed. Yes, and she's kind of like starts hyperventilating and this vision happens and takes them into the bed so all of a sudden she's having a vision right that she's in bed beside this guy this doctor and gabriel climbs over her in the bed in the scene and she's all lit in red from the neon sign and then he basically climbs over this doctor gabriel moves in this very weird way yep he's all like kind of stiff looking and he just looks wrong an angular he's very uncanny and I guess we should say she's bathed in red light. She's laying on her side. And that's that's the movie cover. That's the poster. Oh, yeah. Of course. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. And then so she's like able to look over and see Gabriel stab the shit out of the guy, right? Yeah. So she watches basically Gabriel climbs over her and onto this man. And she sees him kind of rear up and just stab him all about the face. And at this point, did you get a hint to the kind of twisty bit of the movie? Twisty's right. Um, so, yeah. watching it back, I cannot believe how long it must have taken that, that me. That I didn't? Yeah, because I can tell you I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't until they showed me and I was like, oh shit. But like, yeah. you know, it, when you see Gabriel, you see him, I think, more in focus and more in frame every time that he comes mm-hmm. on. And when you see him do this murder, you can tell there's something very strange about him. He's all mm-hmm. stiff looking and bent strangely. So there are little clues that have been happening. Yeah. Holding things weird. Yeah. There's just a wrongness to him. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, I was in the same boat as you. Uh, so it is more obvious now. Yeah. On, yeah, I agree. On looking back, it's like, yeah, how did I not know? <laughs> And it's another scene where they go crazy with the um, blood splatter. So it's like going everywhere. The, the stabbing of the face is really over the top and violent. And there's blood everywhere. Blood on the camera again, I think. So they're really just leaning way into the intense kind of violence of it. Mm-hmm. So she watches this murder again. And of course, she's terrified. And then again, the scene melts away for her where she realizes she wasn't really there. But having seen the last murder play out and then seen it on the news, she knows that that person likely really is dead. And so she goes to the precinct to report a murder 
that nobody knows about. So it's almost like a minority report thing. She wasn't there, but mm-hmm. she knows it happened, and no one knows this person's died, and so obviously she's presenting as maybe a little bit unhinged at the precinct. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we see Gabriel, and she sees him most clearly for the first time. And when she goes to the precinct, it was like a laugh out loud moment for me because she's describing the assailant to the police (laughs) and they turn a sketch towards her. And it is like a photorealistic drawing of what Gabriel really looks like. But what he looks (laughs) like is like a black. But it's ridiculous. He's like a black sheet of hair around a broken up face made of blood and cracked bone. Like it's ridiculous. And do you think it was supposed to elicit a laugh? Because I do. I think that it was kind of presented in kind of a funny way. (laughs) Well, like you said, he looks like his face is made up of meatballs and marinara, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I said. He does look like a meatball. (laughs) He looks like a meatball with hair. And his face is all gnarled, and he's making this crazy face, and it's like the picture is perfect. He is. And they're like, this is the guy who killed the person? (laughs) Yeah. I thought that was a great moment. Imagine doing the sketch because, like, <laughs> you'd be like, "What does his nose look like?" They're like, "No nose." Oh, no nose. No, it's kind of crushed in. Yeah, and it's like, oh, and, and his face is about the size of like a big man's fist, and like not a normal head. <laughs> yeah, and he's got like, you know, hair like the crow, just really long and and <laughs> tenderly and black. Yeah. So yeah, that was a really awesome moment that made me laugh. And imagine being the sketch artist, you're like, you know, they're like, what the, this, where'd you get this guy? The sketch artist is terrible. But she's like, no, no, that's exactly what he looks like. The sketch artist is amazing. She's like, actually, he's incredible. He's perfect. (laughs) How do you even think you would do trying to describe someone that you know very well to a sketch artist? I've thought about this so many times. I don't think I could describe you to a sketch artist. I'd be like, no. yeah, you know, she's got hair and it's brown and um, <laughs> her eyes are in the regular spot. Eyebrows above them, a nose, a mouth. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I could describe someone's facial features well. I don't think I could describe the nose on someone's face if they weren't in front of me. I I just wonder, like, I might, I think that it might happen that I feel like I'm describing someone completely perfectly and how could the person not know just what I'm picturing and I might feel like I'm doing a really good job but I wonder what the sketch artist would turn around and show me you know yeah you're like no that's not my friend that's not what they look like yeah Yeah, that's not my friend I don't even know that guy (laughs) yeah like what the hell I'm trying to describe my friend to you and I don't know who this person is you suck (laughs) I feel like I would have the accuracy of basically a Mr. Potato Head (laughs) but hope no so you know one more reason I hope none of my friends or loved ones go missing. Yeah. I believe, so Gabriel communicates with Maddie. He is able to speak to her, and he says a few things that I thought were kind of interesting when you consider the perspective of this podcast. So he tells her, you let them tell you that I was just a voice in your head and that Mm -hmm. I wasn't real. And so, to me... It had me thinking very much of basically auditory hallucinations and mm-hmm. any kind of hallucination, really, that the experience for the person where they're able to perceive things that other people around them aren't uh, or, or have an experience mm-hmm. that other people mm-hmm. around them aren't having that seems very real to them, right? 
that mm-hmm. they would be getting that same message. Like, I'm sure it's a tale as old as time, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know what's really interesting about working with people who have delusions and hallucinations is mm-hmm. the, so like psychotic disorders. Yeah. Is the experience of having to talk to someone and communicate effectively with someone whose experience of reality is different from yours because it's really hard to do. Before you kind of learn the the tools of the trade, before you learn the skills required to work in that kind of job, you want to say something like, no, there's no one there. If someone says, I'm seeing someone mm-hmm. or I'm hearing voices, it can be an impulse to say, no, there's no sound. No, mm-hmm. no, there's nobody there mm-hmm. or whatever. But that's going to alienate the person and it's not clinically effective to do it. And you can imagine that if you're you're sitting in your home right now and if you told that to me and then I said, no, you're not like mm-hmm. you, how would you feel? It yeah. automatically puts you at odds with each other. And if someone came to me and questioned my reality and said, like, no, you're actually not wearing a green shirt, I'd be like, well, fuck you, I am. You know, like it would mm-hmm. automatically mm-hmm. make me probably irritable and feel like that person's not on my team and they're bugging me or whatever. So when you're trying to work with that person as a member of their healthcare team, you don't want to do that. And so it's a very difficult kind of dance to do where you're trying to not outright. Um, contradict their experiences, but you also need to let them know that your perception is different and you're not going to be on exactly the same page. So instead of saying, no, there's no voice or anything Mm -hmm. like that, what I'm more likely to say is, I don't hear that. I know you do, but I can't hear it. I can't hear what they're saying. And that's a better place to start. Good point, because you're certainly going to get a lot further with one approach than the other especially when you have to work with that person, Mm -hmm. not necessarily overtly challenging something that feels so real to them is probably going to be the best approach in a lot of cases, unless you felt Mm -hmm. like it was going to make things more safe for them to try to, you know, maybe unpack that hallucination a bit, right? Mm -hmm. So even by calling something a hallucination, I don't think it's that we're necessarily coming from the perspective that, well, you know, maybe what they're seeing and hearing is real. Because that's not it. Because Mm -hmm. by calling it a hallucination, we're making the judgment that they're having an experience that is broken from reality in some way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a matter of meeting the person where they're at. Yeah, that's that's what it's all about. And sometimes what it comes down to as well, if I say something like that, like, Mm -hmm. I don't hear that. Sometimes they'll come around to that themselves and say, like, yeah, it's in my head or whatever. Or sometimes the people are very experienced with their symptoms and they've had maybe even, by the point I meet them, maybe even lifelong experience with that kind of uh, symptom. So sometimes they they can identify it super clearly and say like, mm-hmm. oh no, I know it's one of my voices, whatever. It, it really depends on the person, but it's always a good place to to start to be like, as you say, on their level, on the same page as them, but also articulating what my experiences are so that there's everything is clear, but you're not being confrontational about it. Good point. It's a subtle thing, but yep. it, it is a dance that you need to do. And like, I've learned so much in my career about how to interact with patients. Yeah. One thing that I used to do all the time was use a lot of medical jargon. And I felt like that was the right choice because I felt because it was clinical language, that it was non-judgmental. So I was 
felt like I was by being really clear that I was doing the right thing by being polite, essentially. But the experience that I got was people being like, hating it and being like, stop talking like a robot. <laughs> people being like, what the fuck did you just say? Yeah, people being like, would would rather me say something in their language that they're using, like, oh, your thoughts are all fucked up right now. They would rather hear me say that than hear me say, oh, you know, you're having this or like that sounds like this and use use a more clinical term. So, yeah, it's just a, a funny thing. You kind of come to learn how to change your behavior in subtle ways to do your job better, because it's all about when you're in a job dealing with psychiatry and mental health. It's all about using your own behavior, language, manner, demeanor as clinical tools. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I had a lot of that learning in my own work. So now whenever I'm meeting a kid for the first time, I kind of come in, I spin the chair around backwards and I sit in it backwards. So that they know you're cool. I'm wearing a ball cap and I say things like, you know, hey, what's up? Actually, I, you know what I do? I do the what's up thing because it still works. And it still works, even with kids who weren't <laughs> weren't old enough to know the reference. Alive when that came out. <laughs> and then what I also do, I say, you know, oh, FML, am I right? TTYL, BRB. Yeah. And I don't know what these things mean. I don't know what they mean, but it seems to really land well with the kids. And then I tell them, hey... Why don't you take that science book that I asked you to bring to this counseling appointment and throw it and in rip the it trash up. can? Uh. <laughs> exactly. But you learn these things, and it takes a lot of experience, but you know, then you really learn how to connect with the people you're working with. How to connect with these kids. Yeah, how do I reach these kids, exactly. One thing that the police do that I also thought was really funny, I believe it was the first doctor, Dr. Weaver, they find a picture of childhood Maddie like on her person. Or on her desk. And mm-hmm. it's a childhood photo. She might have been 10. You know. Mm-hmm. And they use special aging technology. And <laughs> age it up oh, perfectly. Right. And it looks exactly like Maddie. <laughs> right. So it's literally a, just a picture of Maddie in front of her. They're watching a childhood birthday video at one point as well. When they go visit her mom. Mm-hmm. And it kind of shows clips of her pausing to talk to an imaginary friend. And so that is something I thought we might talk about, too. So that's something that, because I work with youth, gets raised to me occasionally. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that can make the adults in a person's life pretty uncomfortable. If they feel like a child has an imaginary friend and there's some decent commitment to it, or or maybe they feel like it, it goes on for too long and the child might be getting too old for it. Why do you think it might make parents uncomfortable? A, I think that people worry that a child will stick out for the wrong reasons if they're doing atypical things, which is a sad thought. But B, I think when it gets on a little too long for the parents or adults' comfort, I think they start to worry that it might be a little more sinister than just an imaginary friend or a little more worrisome than just an imaginary friend where they might worry, is there a chance that this kid's actually hallucinating or -hmm. something like that? But generally speaking... My experience with imaginary friends and some of the brief research I've done, because it's definitely not something I work with every day, basically says that it's it's likely very benign and it doesn't necessarily have an age of expiration. And for some kids, it just seems to be part of the way that they can understand things and process things. 
And also, there probably isn't anything too dangerous about it, mm-hmm. unless it happened to be a really wicked kind of voice that the imaginary friend had, or any kind of commands that it was giving that maybe were unsafe. So I wonder if you want to unpack a bit what, what a command voice would be and what that means. Yep. So that is a clinical term, command hallucination. And it would be part of our assessment if someone is telling us that they are having auditory hallucinations, we would unpack that with further questions about kind of the content of what they're hearing, whether whether it is a voice, because it's not always an auditory mm-hmm. hallucination doesn't have to be a voice. It could be any kind of sound that other people can't hear. It's not part of other people's reality. But voices are definitely a very, very common one. And so from there, we would even further, like sometimes people hear whispering voices that they can't understand the content of what they're saying. They can't hear words. Other times they're saying things and putting them down. But a kind that we do get more concerned about are the command hallucinations. And it's in the name. It's when the voices that someone is hearing as part of their hallucination give them instructions to do things. And then we further would unpack that and question more about whether they're telling the sufferer to hurt themselves or another person. Because commonly that is what the content is if there's uh, command hallucinations. Mm -hmm. So I have had patients who have had commands to seriously hurt themselves up to killing themselves, right? There are people who have voices telling them to kill themselves or even like more specific things like to cut off a body part or to drive their car into a pole. It it can be Mm -hmm. even like very specific and very dangerous. So it's important to know the contents of what the auditory hallucination voices are saying so that we can kind of see like what level of supervision they might need, what level of intervention they might need. And another thing that I would clarify if someone is having a command hallucination is whether they feel compelled to do that thing. Right. Because some people can hear it and yeah, it bugs them and scares them, but they don't feel under pressure to act on it. But some people do. And there's a lot of nuance to it because it is not uncommon either for someone to feel that they are actually hearing their internal dialogue. Yep. So your internal voice, for example, and your internal voice could be a lot of help to you at times or depending how it manifests it could also be your worst enemy so if you're very self-critical mm-hmm. you might have a, a an inner critic we might sometimes call it to externalize those thoughts a bit but there are many people who describe an experience of really feeling like they can actually hear the voice in their head yep and it's not necessarily considered a hallucination and yeah that's something i clarify with patients all the time And I'll even say sometimes if the person seems to need it to like understand what I'm trying to ask is I'll say, do you hear voices other than your own internal voice? I I will say that Mm -hmm. like other than your own internal narrative, because sometimes you get people who like, you know, psychosis was nowhere on their radar. They're in for anxiety or depression or whatever. And then I ask them about voices and because they think that way, they get scared and they're like, oh, my God, I do. And it's like, no, 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 it's okay. You know, that's not what that is. Right. Yeah, fair enough. And it's just amazing because even I've worked with people who had hallucinations, visual hallucinations, things like that, that at the end of the day, they were attributed to a manifestation of their anxiety. You know, like a, a lot of scary or unexpected things can happen. And it doesn't always mean that we're talking about a psychotic disorder 
or or anything yeah. like that, right? That's something I was going to say is that symptoms of psychosis don't always equate to a psychotic disorder. Right. And there's a lot of nuance to it because there's also people who get diagnoses of uh, mood disorders with psychotic features or anxiety disorders yeah. with psychotic features, right? Right. It's not, um, you know, it's not a perfect checklist that you're always yes. going to fit exactly within whatever criteria. So sometimes uh, physicians, when they're diagnosing, they need to get a little bit more specific and, you know, add amendments to um, what their diagnosis is to make it more clear. And even also on top of that, a diagnosis doesn't even need to be there to get your symptoms treated, right? Like you could have psychotic symptoms and, and never get diagnosed with a psychotic disorder or anything else. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we wanted to talk about a few of those themes and this movie does actually present quite a few of those themes because we're talking about... Despite being very kind of silly, it yeah. does leave the opportunity to talk about it. Absolutely. And one of the biggest elements for Maddie in this movie is that she experiences visual hallucinations and hers happen to kind of show her something that's really happening. And then also, as we learn later in the movie, there's an element of what would be the word unrealness to them too, that's being projected to her, you know? So there's, she's being shown something that isn't there and breaking through the veil are some things that mm. really are happening at that point too. So it actually mm -hmm. is really interesting. Although, like you said, the tone of this movie is just to use <laughs> it to have a lot of fun with. Right. Yeah. But one, one thing actually that I will say that is like accurate is the way mm -hmm. that she responds to the hallucinations that or her experience it seems like they're hallucinations um her response to them being intense distress is often very much the case of course that's understandable right when people are acutely psychotic and having those those symptoms when i say acutely i mean like intensely severely because obviously there are degrees of any kind of symptom when people are having those symptoms really acutely it can be so, so horrible, very distressed, people screaming in fear from the experiences Aww. they're having, crying, you know, all those things. So the distress that she shows, I think, is very realistic. Be such a hard experience to go through well. To see, well, and like, I mean, what she's seeing, right? Seeing people get killed in front of her? Yeah. Of course, that's particularly bad. So it, her mom makes a comment that she figured if they gave her enough love that that Maddie wouldn't need Gabriel, her imaginary friend, anymore. Which I think is something that a parent could definitely come to in terms of their decisions to try to address the problem. That makes sense to me. Yeah, but that's just too high of a standard to hold yourself to as a parent. That, it, that if you love your child well enough that, you know, their problems are going to go away. <laughs> so, there is a, a scene again where Gabriel's ready to kill another doctor from his past. So basically, he is picking <laughs> off all of the people that were in the picture that Dr. Weaver was in that was basically her yep. medical team that was treating Gabriel when Maddie was a young child. All physicians, though. He's not killing any of the uh, nurses or porters or x-ray techs or anything like that. They were probably fluffing his pillow and giving him some good bedside yeah. manner and things like that, getting him water and getting him popsicles. When you need oh, them. you want apple juice and orange juice? Only because you're my favorite patient, Gabriel. Here you go. Yeah, Gabriel has just hacked the 1950s <laughs> radio 
And he's like, I want apple juice. (laughs) Coming right up, buddy. (laughs) Here you go. Here you go. Gabriel, you're my favorite patient. (laughs) You're my favorite customer. (laughs) Oh, my God. So this is a really cool scene where, again, the world kind of turns on its axis, according to Maddie, and then fades away. She's brushing her teeth. Is that right? Uh, She's staring right in the mirror. And then all of a sudden, there's this old geezer looking back at her where her reflection should be. She's like, oh, I'm, I'm aging horribly. Oh, I'm old. And she looks in the mirror and goes, oh, I'm like the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Scream Queen. Here she is. Yeah. So she does see the image of this old man staring back at her and basically watches as he moves towards his tub. Yeah, and then he takes a very relaxing bath with, like, his iPad and everything going on, and I think, like, a glass of wine. Yeah, he's got a sweet setup. I think all these doctors, are they have a healthy income. Well, fair enough. That's the, that's the thing about doctors. And yet the one guy still chooses to live in the Easy Bake Oven apartment with the big red yeah, light bulb. Easy, yes, where he's slowly being cooked by the light bulbs. <laughs> so as she's seeing this vision... Detective Shaw also puts together, given the photograph, that that old man doctor who's having the tub might be the next one to get killed. Yes. He's the one person in the picture who's still kicking. And so he shows up there and Maddie is paralyzed watching this happen and she's trying to signal to Detective Shaw what's going on. And she, well, signal, she's yelling at him, but... yeah. She's more or less not present, so he, he's not able to perceive what she's saying. And he gets in a physical altercation with the scary bad guy. Yeah, so he walks through and, and we see that Gabriel's behind him in a bit of a jump scare. And also the doctor is absolutely extremely dead in the tub. Oh, very, very dead. Very oh, like dead. Rita from Dexter kind of situation. Oh, God, I forgot all about that. So from this point on, we're in full on like... Oh, like John Wick in the horror genre territory, because the film goes ape shit after this. Except that it's, I think, a lot less uh, practical action than John Wick. <laughs> yeah, I feel, which is really saying something. So here's where the twist happens. I think we can unveil it now confidently. So they're fighting in the bathroom and quite like long drawn out chase fight combination scene. And so at one point, Gabriel gets out. Fair, like quite a ways ahead of uh, Detective Shaw somehow because he runs pretty awkwardly <laughs> and he turns a corner and he's like completely a backwards person. A person turned around backwards and it looks so it looks so goofy. It's very funny. Like I feel like we that's another time that we laughed out loud in the theater. It looks hilarious. It looks like someone is in front of you running backwards and then lurching around a corner. Yeah. It, it looks like someone, like, backing up and being like, yee, like it looks goofy. <laughs> yeah, so you get the impression that Gabriel basically has a backwards body, right? Because his face yeah. is on the back, and the body is clearly backwards. And then some of it all falls into focus because there was a scene where he grabs that medical award in one scene and the hand was clearly backwards turned around and you've noticed that he moves so strangely and that he looks fucked up before honestly before he ran around the corner i knew he moved weird but i didn't know what was so weird about it until then yeah so this is a crazy chasing down a fire escape 
jumping, oh my God. falling. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what? Detective Shaw, like, fucking throws himself onto a dumpster sideways. He doesn't even try to land on his feet. No, like... <laughs> did he think it would be worse to land on his feet? <laughs> I don't know. Like, get the, did he want to get the impact over more surface area or something by landing sideways? He's probably trying to elicit a WSIB claim. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I, yeah, I went head first. He's like, oh, I landed on that dumpster. It feels like a three-weeker for sure, at least. Yeah, whew. But that's not it, because he just keeps running. Chases Gabriel, like, through a sewer grate kind of thing, because they end up in all the tunnels that we were introduced to earlier. Yes, and as you said before, that's probably why they chose that as that lady's profession. Yeah, and Gabriel is moving with insane strength insane speed basically a superhero or a supervillain superhuman strength and it's it's hilarious once you're cued in it's so funny and fun to watch someone do everything upside down and backwards basically so sean gabriel's big chase basically culminates in gabriel hiding on top of a carriage that has to be from hundreds of years ago why is that down there yeah, yeah. I don't know. so it's a horse-drawn carriage in the middle of the tunnels underneath the city and he's hiding on top so shaw doesn't catch him for that reason <laughs> but then this does kind of at least for the other detective who's kind of getting more suspicious of maddie and kind of has been from the start at least here we've got detective shaw being able to say like well that sure as hell wasn't maddie i've met maddie yeah that's true right that's what I felt like when I, when I watched the movie at first. I felt like a little bit of relief for that. And that's one thing I think, although Regina Moss was on the right track, I almost felt like she had a vendetta against Maddie in some ways because there was plenty yeah. of evidence to say that it wasn't her, including the fact that Maddie cannot jump off of a building and break through walls and do all the things that Gabriel was doing. And yeah. Maddie was also there saying, this is what's going on. I'm trying to tell you about these murders. I have no idea. So... Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a bit of an intense situation and, and a strange one. Mm-hmm. They ask her a couple things. They say, would you be willing to meet with a therapist who specializes in unlocking repressed memories, which is a whole mm-hmm. minefield in reality that we'll probably try to talk about one day, but is a huge conversation. You know, it's a big topic that has definitely been in the public consciousness before the issue or the idea of repressed or suppressed memories but there's not a lot of consensus on that particular topic and there's a lot of dissenting views on either side and a a lot of room for a lot of room for dangerous error of course you're talking about it i think yeah i i really agree and there have been cases where you know supposed repressed memories turned out to not be true and it caused a whole bunch of problems so i'm sure we will talk about that subject in the future but we'll want to feel like we're pretty well researched on it as well Mm -hmm. yeah which is definitely i wouldn't say i i am at all it's more something i know from listening to true crime than anything in my uh, professional life i can tell you that much very contentious issue but honestly memory memory is just a crazy concept it is i mean that sounds very general but the things that we know about memory are like so varied and contradictory and you know like the idea that trauma can both kind of like crystallize memories and you don't forget 
a single bit of what happened. And at the same time, people can also completely forget details of their trauma or aspects of it or like blank out entire, yeah, entire bits of their life or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very deep rabbit hole, you know, any of these subjects for sure. Yeah. Too, too deep for this funny movie conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, stop trying to pull us into these giant wormholes here, Malignant. Oh, I thought we were here to have fun. Yeah, I know. I know that it's it's so heady and deep, this movie. It's just we need to stay on top of it. Yeah, we need to get back to the Meatball Man. Yeah, let's, okay, so the Meatball Man has been <laughs> witnessed now by Detective Shaw. Yes, and so they do have some therapists come and try to basically hypnotize her and unpack some lost memories. We see scenes that are classic in the horror genre where basically a kid's being blamed for something that a specter did essentially ruining a birthday cake telling maddie to go and hurt her parents where she ends up holding a knife over her pregnant mother Mm -hmm. where gabriel really didn't want maddie's sister to be born sydney and sydney's great she might be the the most likable character in the whole movie oh she's very likable and as the in, in what must be absolutely horrible timing as the detectives are meeting with maddie and her sister a bound woman falls through the ceiling right down (laughs) to the ground (laughs) to to her oh i was about to say to her death not quite nope to her injury which was which was like the biggest surprise of the movie yeah and the best twist in it i think Yeah, so we've seen this woman. This is Maddie's birth mother who Gabriel abducted very early on in the movie. And we've seen the setting that she was in but didn't know that it was the attic of Maddie's house. The attic of her house, yeah. We were thrown off by that big industrial metal fan. Yeah, I think that that was probably on purpose, but I don't hate it because they don't... It It does work. There are certain twists in movies, and I've talked to you about this before, that I really, I think are kind of cheap. Because oh, yeah. I think I think that a good twist is a twist that you can look back over the course of the whole movie after the twist is revealed and be like, oh, yeah, of yes. course, that's what it was. See all the clues. The clues were all there. Of course, that's what it was, which is what the sixth sense is. Because like once the twist is revealed, you can look back and see like, oh, of course. Exactly. And it just makes it, it, it like, you know, when Raven had a vision and it zooms in on her face and like the world flies by her for a second. And, oh. and that's so Raven. Oh my god, do I know what Raven looks like when she gets a vision. I loved that show. Well, that's the way a good twist feels. That's the way, yes, it does. That's true. What do you think is like the all-time best twist that ever happened? I honestly think that might be it. Sixth Sense is like the famous case. It is. What do you think about Fight Club? Fight Club's also really good, but I, I do think... um. Yeah, Psycho's good too. I think that Psycho's better than Fight Club. Because yeah. like the two actors thing. I'm a little bit less impressed by being tricked by that. You know what I mean? Fair enough. The clues weren't necessarily abundant. I mean, on a narrative level, I feel like the clues were there, but I'm seeing two different people. You know what I mean? You know what one really got me? Yeah? And it was in book form. And I should have seen it coming maybe, but was Gone Girl. When it gets to that halfway point in the book and it really flips on its head and the antagonist becomes the antagonized, right? And I was like, whoa, man, that one really spun me around. Do you know what book twist really got me? And spoiler, the silent patient. Yep. 
that one was good. That one got me too. You know what I think might be the best twist of all time? In The Godfather. Have you seen that movie? I haven't. Do you mind if I spoil it for you? Oh, you know what? It's only been out however many years, so I felt like I had time to watch it. (laughs) I just haven't got around to that one yet. So (laughs) the point where you realize that Don Corleone is an android. Oh. You know, so that's something I didn't see coming. I had heard that. I had heard that. Oh, okay, okay. I figure it's out. You know, the secret's out. So, yeah, it's a great twist. We, We knew this lady was all locked up, but then all of a sudden we find out it's in Maddie's house because for some reason she crashes through the floor she crashes through the ceiling of her attic and lands flat on the floor in front of the detectives which not a good look for Matt yeah. at all so yeah i was gonna say so now guess who's in big trouble yeah oh great how am i gonna explain this one so then she's being basically interrogated and during that interrogation gabriel takes over someone's phone and he speaks to the detectives and the lights blow up he smashes out the lights, so the the detectives are a little shaken up, but uh, Moss is still convinced Maddie's at the center of it. Well, but then I think, well, she is, but that that is another thing that makes me say, like, well, that's not her doing it. She's sitting right in front of her. You can see. No kidding. I guess they thought she had a, a confederate of some kind helping her. So as she's in this interrogation room with the detectives, there's not much that Sydney can do to help her. But what she does do, she drives back to the super scary haunted medical center, which is abandoned. Yeah, and she she goes right into the most convenient parking spot, which is right <laughs> on the edge of a cliff. Six inches from a, a sheer cliff into like some bluffs with enormous waves crashing. And I'm afraid of heights. I would, wouldn't be within 15 feet of that edge, let alone park my car on it. And that's probably the only reason you wouldn't feel at home, because this is a medical center, so you it should is. be in your element. Yeah, I mean, any medical center anywhere in the world, ah, relaxing. So I was just thinking, I have a little note here, very brave, very helpful sister, willing yes. to just go Good to sister. this abandoned old medical center to break in and search through all their old records to get stuff that might help her sister. Like, you go, Sydney. Absolutely. Good good sister for sure it's kind of nice to see sibling support in movies because i feel like it's not always the most highlighted relationship good point as much as like a romantic partner might be or even like a friend or a parent yep you know what it's also even more rare probably to see is siblings who are supportive of each other and our children in film mm yeah, that's true. It's it's always... It's always like, oh, you're a brat. Rivals, yeah. Oh, I'm the asshole, and I'm the bratty sister, and I'm <laughs> the whatever. I'm the weird younger brother. <laughs> like, they, they never like each other. It's just, it, you can't make a movie where that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Sydney goes and recovers a videotape, which... Uh, just one videotape? She's got some, like, paper files, too, I think. And she brings them home to her mom, which I also like that the that the mom ends up being a, you know, medium-sized character. Yeah. And that they kind of work as a family to try to help Maddie here. And so they review the footage. And this yes. is where the twist is completely unveiled. Mask is totally off. We see what is going on. And yeah. what's going on is that Gabriel is growing out of Maddie's back. 
Yeah. And basically, medically speaking, <laughs> you know, in, in this very like fantastical version of what happened, he was an entity that was kind of like removed as much as possible when Maddie was a kid and then more or less forced inside of her head. And so he doesn't have any arms like he used to or anything like that, but he still kind of exists within her head. And it's so the idea and and physically because there is and and some pieces of his face yeah. some pieces of of him and so the idea was that when she got her head smashed at the beginning of the movie that it, it more or less made like a crack through which he could emerge and like come to power again yes exactly so he'd been repressed for so long and there must have been an element of her learning to put him away too because she was still having mm-hmm. like an imaginary friend after she had had him physically removed from the back of her that's true. But you're right. The knock on the head, which they could have done any way. She could have slipped and fell. But they represented by having her boyfriend slam her head into the plaster of the wall and crack her head open. It's awoken, Gabriel. Right. So before and in the videos, we see Gabriel was like a bug. He was like a, a like a bug pod almost with like praying mantis arms. And he was all <laughs> creepy. Yes. But so they, they describe... They try to use a medical term, and yeah. that ter- that term is teratoma. Extreme form. An extreme form of a teratoma. <laughs> Which is nonsense. But, a, like, a teratoma is not, is not a twin. A teratoma is a tumor. Well, what is it called when you have a tumor, but it might have some hair in it or some teeth? Well, so, it, that's not what it, it's not where it comes from. Like, uh, oh, okay. A, a teratoma is a tumor that has different kinds of tissue in it that aren't oh. um, that aren't like normally in that area. So like hair, bone, skin, and but then uh, but then that's what makes makes it creepy. Makes you think that it's all the bits and pieces of another person. But it's not. No, it's just it's just a tumor that has different kinds of tissue in it. Well, and and that's the thing. It's pretty clear, even if you want to look at a teratoma in that way. He's obviously not an extreme manifestation of a teratoma. He's some kind of manifestation of a conjoined twin. You know, well, like- yeah. So there is a like subtype of teratoma called a fetiform teratoma, and that's super rare. But that's when it it is more like a a malformed fetus, and because basically human bodily processes especially including gestation are so complex that it's it's honestly like most of the complications or like variations of normal that you can imagine kind of have happened to someone somewhere sometime yeah right so after that that's when they delivered the classic line again i believe of time to cut out the cancer which comes back and they cut him up real bad so as much as they were showing us the kind of abstract dissection in the beginning in the credit scenes, we didn't necessarily mm-hmm. know that what Gabriel was or what he looked like. And then they show him kind of hacked to pieces. There's a scene, a really nasty scene, where they're cutting his head in half and then they're pushing it back into Maddie's yeah, skull. Yeah, push, pushing that into her head. That that was what stuck out to me. It's so disgusting, that concept. Oh, man. Yeah, and you get the impression there wouldn't be a lot of room, so there's, like, some stuff pushing on her. Well, I was going to say, there is exactly enough room in your head for your brain. (laughs) And, like, that's it. (laughs) 
And there's something interesting that happens if your skull doesn't have quite enough space for your brain is mm. that it starts to push down out the base of your skull. Oh, right. And it's called a Chiari malformation, pretty sure. Again, not my, this is not my area of expertise, by the way. So during this time, Maddie has been stuck in this jail cell. It's not prison. It's a jail cell, and it is absolutely chock-a-block oh, it's, it's, filled with hookers. Yes, but I was going to say it's also, like, absolutely enormous cavernous yes. jail cell. <laughs> it's a James Wan jail cell. Oh, yeah, it, you're right. Chock-a-block full of a very interesting array of criminals. From across time. From across time, yeah. I was going to say, one of them is straight out of the 1970s. Yeah. One of them probably more like the 80s. <laughs> and they're also comically villainous in their behavior. Like, oh, exactly. you, like, oh look at you, pretty girl. <laughs> they start intensely messing with Maddie for absolutely yeah. no reason. Yeah. Yeah, she's just being bullied because uh, everyone's jealous of her. And this is where we get the prestige, the big reveal, where she basically has a transformation scene where Gabriel is bursting out the back of her skull. And twisting her around, yeah. Yes, we hear all these bone-cracky sounds as he bends her limbs to his will and turns her backwards so that he can start doing his thing. And he does start doing his thing because he immediately is <laughs> ripping people's bodies apart. Yeah, I was going to say doing his thing is like, Quickly dispatching every single soul yes. in that prison cell. <laughs> in the most wicked, violent ways. And, like, most of them weren't even talking to her. <laughs> well, they're guilty by association. Yeah. And the last one living is the kind of 80s looking one. And you can see her calling into the hallway to the guards for help. But then you see her get sucked back in a very, like, classic movie monster <laughs> kind of way. Yeah. And, uh, R.I.P. She's dispatched. And there's a really gross curb stomping kill. She puts her hand right through a person's body. Right. And it's like, where the hell were the guards, by the way? Because everyone's screaming and getting eviscerated yeah. and torn apart. <laughs> what are the guards even for? <laughs> yeah, so that she does actually kill the guard as well and is able to yeah. take his keys. And then she makes it out into, uh, you know, the police station proper. And this is the most John Wicky of all the scenes. And she's kind of, or well, he, Gabriel, is kind Gabriel. of running up walls and diving and jumping over desks and killing every single cop in the whole precinct. Yeah, and uh, he does all but two, right? And this is the this is the sequence that I thought looked pretty video gamey, to my yeah, memory. True. It looked better on the big screen for some reason, and I don't know if there's like a different version that they put on streaming versus the one that they show. I don't know, but I was like, ooh, this looks worse than I remember. We were wishing a little bit at that point for some practical effects. As much as I thought the yeah. CGI was really good up until then. Understandably, you can't do it all like that, but yeah. After, like, with all this carnage that's happening in the police station, Detective Shaw and Detective Moss end up being injured, but survive. And I think that they are the only two that do. Them yep. and the CSI tech, tech or whatever who had been uh, in it before. and. Kakoa Shaw being the least injured of them, he's the one to go to the hospital because they've kind of deduced that that's where the birth mother is. And so that's probably the next place Gabriel's going to go. 
right. they're not the only ones who have come to that conclusion because Sydney, after watching those tapes, realizes that the person who probably knows the most information and could maybe be helpful to them is the birth mother also. So she goes to the hospital mm-hmm. and is more or less being stopped outside the door because the that person is under guard by like a security guard. Yeah. And and then as she's kind of trying to talk to the security guard about why she needs to get in to see this woman, the security guard kind of clutches at his chest. And, oh, yes. And he starts having some pain and she's trying to help him. But it he goes, oh, my pacemaker, pretty much just in time for you to see it explode out of his chest. And we're definitely to, to assume that that was Gabriel. That was a message from Gabriel using his control over electronics. So now Sydney you know, can't really do much about that. And she does go in. And then we end up with Gabriel and Sydney and the birth mom all in the same room together for the climax here. And so because Gabriel's in the room, technically Maddie's in the room too. Right. And mom's, uh, the birth mom says, I shouldn't have given you up. I should have loved you more. Yeah. And it, it seems to give Gabriel pause, which is kind of sad. <laughs> But Sydney is trying to kind of stop him from doing what he's there to do, which is to kill the birth mom. And mm-hmm. he said that he had been saving Sydney to last, and he throws a hospital bed on top of her. Yeah. And those, those probably weigh uh, more than a few pounds. Well, you're the nurse, you know? Do they not uh, have you try to lift them in training? It's bigger than a bread box, I can tell you that much. Oh, thank you. Yes, that, that helps. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> And then we, we have a scene where he does kill Sydney, right? But then it's a reveal that Maddie has turned, she's, yeah. she's learned how to control mm-hmm. the power of her mind, and she's turned the tables on Gabriel and shown him a false vision for the first time. Yeah, to like insert images into his brain. And you know what she says to him? You don't get to control me ever again. And so I'm thinking, you know what, the themes of, male control over female bodies and things like that kind of is and, coming yeah, through just like that. body body autonomy yeah oh and so that that's an interesting thing too the idea that she maddie would have gabriel as her conjoined twin doesn't make sense ah because they'd share genetic material like completely they would be like identical twins because identical twins start as one fertilized egg that then splits. So anyway, that's just something I, I thought was kind of funny about the movie. But that being said, how, how someone uh, identifies in terms of their gender identity is a whole other thing. So, Good point. Good point. She also says, you don't get my mind or my body. And so I'm like, okay, well, there you kind of lost the whole illusion factor then. You're just saying it now. <laughs> like there there was a nice kind of undertone there and then it's like let me you know what the audience might not get it let me just say it <laughs> <laughs> which is fine hey like we said it's not uh, it's not a movie that is as deep as some others no <laughs> so she basically forces gabriel back into her own head and and in the mind palace she mm-hmm. basically locks him in an enormous empty cage and he tries to bang against the walls and stuff, but she basically tells him she's keeping him in here and he's not to come out. Mm-hmm. But to me, that didn't feel very finite to me because I'm mm-hmm. like, well, he's still in there. And he says so. He's like, I'm going to find my way out of here. Yeah, I know. So it didn't seem final to me. 
But then, so the problem still stands that Sydney is still underneath this hospital bed, which I assume crushed her at least somewhat. Yeah. And so then Maddie goes over and Sydney's like, no, 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 you need help. Wait. And then Maddie says, it's always been my body. So I guess she's always been superhumanly strong and just, just never knew know it. it. And she goes ahead and lifts it off of uh, off of Sydney. Doesn't have to do it backwards either. And And doesn't she say something more or less along the lines of, here I was, you know, wishing that I could have a close family blood connection with someone. <laughs> and I and I had it all, all all along with you. And I didn't kind of didn't appreciate the depth of their relationship. Which is great because it's good that she's giving Sydney her flowers because Sydney is a great sister. I think that she just kind of came to realize that the idea of like a blood connection is kind of arbitrary. Fair enough. Yeah. And like, obviously, um, being adopted into a family is one thing, but another concept that people have is, uh, you know, a found family and just like choosing your family yeah. with your group of friends and, and even like with your spouse and that kind of thing. So I think that that theme kind of comes up at the end too. Well, and I think sometimes we might see the notion that uh, of the importance of family, which I, I'll be the first to say family is extremely important to me. Mm-hmm. There also might be some pressure then to put up with some behavior or some relationships that might really not be working out well for you because they're family members of yours. And so, you know, sometimes people have to also come to the realization that to keep themselves healthy, they might have to distance themselves from some of their family members, which can be a really hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's a sword that can cut both ways. So a couple things. I think that quite a few mental health topics came up as we were mm-hmm. discussing this movie. But one thing that I was thinking of as I was watching it play out, I was really interested in the kind of projected false identity scenes that Gabriel was using to control and trick Maddie, that he was taking control of her body and basically showing her a false scene. And we've spoken Mm. about hallucinations and other kinds of dissociation quite a few times. But one thing it was making me think of was depersonalization and derealization. So Mm -hmm. what that means is depersonalizing basically the feeling of being outside of your body and derealizing the experience of feeling that the experience you're having and the way that you're seeing the environment that you're in, it's fake and it's not real. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things that, um, because there is a diagnosis that stands of depersonalization slash derealization disorder and people can have depersonalization experiences or derealizing experiences for a lot of reasons Mm -hmm. but one thing that sets it apart from some other forms of dissociation is that the person generally speaking has the sense that what they're seeing is not real so they're they know that something is happening that's kind of playing a trick on their mind and it's showing them themselves looking down on their own body or Mm -hmm. showing them a scene play out that they know isn't real. And so that's something that I was really thinking about with Maddie because the veil that Gabriel creates is not perfect and she kind of gets glimpses that shine through of she thought she was in her bedroom but really she's somewhere else. But she's Mm -hmm. able to pick up on it and she knows that what she's seeing is a false image. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And depersonalization can be a a trait associated with a bunch of different disorders, including a lot of personality disorders as well. And in a very interesting way, depersonalization can also be 
a somewhat normal experience in certain situations. So a lot of us have probably heard some recounted details of things like a near-death experience mm. and things like that. And to have the sense that you're watching the an event play out against your own body, but you're not inside your body can be a very common experience when you're in a life-threatening situation, which is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And even a lot of the opinions and perspectives on things like dissociation of all types is that it can kind of be a way for your brain... To protect yourself? Yeah, for your brain to just nope out of a situation Mm -hmm. to protect you from it. So it's as if you weren't there when it happened. And that is just incredible. Like, that's so amazing. Yeah. That's like the it's like the prospect of fight, flight, or freeze, but your brain is is running from the situation even though your body's in it. Like that is mm-hmm. such an interesting kind of survival instinct, you know, when you think about it. It's so human because it it's so high level, right? Like it's amazing. The process must be so complex. Like that's a an innately human thing. Hmm. You can imagine it with trauma, right? Yeah. You know, in cases of something like, yeah, of like abuse or captivity or something where you're where you're like so completely helpless that you can't possibly get out of the situation physically. There are absolutely no ways or something along the lines of even like uh, solitary confinement or something like that. Right. Yeah, it's just incredible. Because, yeah, you've got no other options in terms of your body. So your brain, your mind figures out something to survive and it just sh- goes to show as well that just being fed and clothed and physically okay is not enough your you know hmm. your mental wellness your your mental health is is so important that your brain will override uh in such an interesting way as to kind of take you out of yourself yeah and it, it's i'm sure it's a subject we'll come back to because it's and it's because it's big you know it's a big subject And I think horror really does go back to the well with it a lot because things like trauma or, Mm -hmm. you know, having experiences where you're breaking from reality. It's such a scary concept and a deep concept that a lot of movies really choose to tap into it. And, uh, you know, not the least of which this movie. And I just thought that that was really what it had me thinking of because there are so many ways to dissociate. But those particular ways were more kind of what Maddie was experiencing. and, And like you said... It can be a common thing that might stem from uh, traumatic experiences, abuse, and things like that. But it can also be a symptom that comes and goes and doesn't even necessitate a diagnosis of a psychiatric disorder either. So mm-hmm. it's just very interesting, you know. Um, so yeah, that's what that's what we were thinking. I think this film, although I didn't think so when we first set out to talk <laughs> about it, it really did present quite a few themes. Yeah, for sure. So, takeaways from the movie. Why do you like this movie? What do you like about the movie? Okay, well, what I like about it doesn't really have anything to do with the mental health topics. The myriad of mental health topics we've discussed. But I think it's lots of fun. I like that it kind of embraces being pretty goofy and, like, obviously super mm-hmm. far-fetched and not not grounded or anything like that. Yeah. I like that it just kind of goes for it and does kind of silly things. And it it has all the kind of cool, fun looks that we like in like a James yes. Wan movie. Yeah. And yeah, it's just a fun ride. Yeah, I completely agree. And I didn't, when I first saw it in theaters, I didn't know what I was in for. So that was a lot of fun. It took me off in a very fun direction. It's got all the horror style. It's got all the 
horror kind of hues and tones that I really love. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's a very funny concept and it's a lot of fun to watch and kind of action packed right through. A couple good laughs too. So that always makes Mm -hmm. me happy. So... Yeah, we want to thank everyone so much for joining us for another episode. Uh, this movie is a, has been a pleasure to speak about and definitely in a very different stream from our last episode, The Silence of the Lambs. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun. If you're inclined, we would really appreciate yes. a review. It would just help uh, maybe help us reach a wider audience or new people who might want to listen. So yeah, so if you're, if you're at all inclined, we would really appreciate if you would rate us. We would also really appreciate if you would reach out to us by email. We've had some communication with people before and we really, really did appreciate it and uh, had a lot of fun responding and, you know, got us pretty excited that we're reaching the right audience. Yeah, we would encourage you guys to reach out to us at our Gmail account, thefearresponsepodcast at gmail.com. And to follow us on Instagram. Oh, yes. And to follow us on Instagram at the fear response podcast so we'd love to interact with you guys to hear about any of your own opinions about these movies or anything you'd like to see or hear from us in the future Uh, we'd really love to hear from you yeah thank you again and we'll see you next time yes take care everyone okay what would be your superpower if you could choose I'm going to give you four options. Oh. Breathe underwater. Speak 50 languages. Um, fly. Or super strong. Okay. What is the flight like? Swimming in the air. Oh. Well, <laughs> it would probably still be flying. Yeah, me too. I don't think you could overstate how amazing that would be. No. Me either. Especially like... if you imagined it like swimming... And, like, you could still... It might take you a while, but you could swim up however far you wanted. But, like, am I going to swim to work? No. So I would <laughs> I would only swim to, like, go... I would only fly to, like, go have some fun. And go yeah. look at stuff from really high up. I don't think I'd make it very far. I'd have to get involved in, like, high-level espionage. Yeah. You might be so good... You might be, like, forced by the government or something. But probably if I could fly by swimming in the air, they wouldn't be able to find a use for me. They'd be like, well, I mean... He can't go too far. He tires out pretty quick. We're not going to have him, like, taking down planes or anything. <laughs> no, you could maybe dismantle, like, a helicopter or something that can hover, but I don't think you could do anything to a plane. Dismantle? You mean, like... You're slowly taken apart. <laughs> I don't even know what you what I'm thinking you meant to say, but you meant, like, make it not work, but dismantle <laughs> being, like, take it apart piece by piece. That is what I meant. <laughs> I'd just bring my tools up there and I'd be like, oh, you're going down, buddy. I'm taking all your pieces off. That's what I meant. I did not misspeak. In mid-flight dismantling. Yeah, you just take it apart. The government's like, it worked. (laughs) That very important helicopter was taken apart over several hours. (laughs) That's awesome.